Los Angeles County. It's a sprawling metropolis, home to the second largest city in the United States, and it's also one of its most crowded. A Times analysis found more people are squeezing into fewer rooms in LA County than any other large county in America. And it's been a disaster for public health even before COVID-19 began to spread. It makes perfect sense when you're talking about infectious diseases, communicable diseases. The closer people are to other people, the more time they are in that close proximity, the easier it is for you to get spread. It's the issue at schools, it's the issue at some of our work sites, and it's obviously the issues in many of our homes. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, essential news from the LA Times. It's Wednesday, October 19th, 2022. Today, Los Angeles for decades advertised itself as an American Eden, but it ignored repeated warnings about the consequences of overcrowding on the working class. Now, when the situation is worse than ever and spreading, calls to fix it continue to go nowhere. My colleagues Brittany Mejia and Liam Dillon just published a huge investigation on this matter. Brittany's a feature writer. Liam covers housing. Both of ustedes, welcome to the Times. Thank you. Thanks so much. There's so many stories that the two of you did, great ones on issues, profiles, analysis. Of all the people that the two of you talked to, who especially stood out? Yeah, so when we started reporting this story, we really wanted to illustrate what a heavy toll overcrowding has had on communities. For us, Leonardo Miranda and his living situation was the clearest example of that. Leonardo was a construction worker living in Pico Union. He caught COVID first, and he shared the bathroom, kitchen, and dining room inside of the main house. And from there, it really started to spread. It spread to someone sleeping in the laundry room floor, sleeping on like three red cushions. It spread to a grandfather, to his grandson. And then by the time that was over, two people in the house had died, including Leonardo. If you look at Miranda's neighborhood, Pico Union, that's actually one of the most overcrowded neighborhoods in the country. They have an overcrowding rate of 40%, and that's in comparison to LA, which overcrowding rate is 11%. So there's a huge difference there. It actually is denser than New York City. And when you look at the COVID impact, I mean, there have been tens of thousands of cases, like nearly 16,000 COVID cases and nearly 300 people who have died of the virus, which is one of LA County's highest death rates. I think what was really striking about this whole endeavor was to understand the extent to which sort of L.A. development history led up to the point that, you know, a significant driver of the mass death, frankly, that L.A. has seen over the last three years during the pandemic is overcrowded housing and seeing how this sort of century of decisions that we've made as a region led to that was striking and and deeply sobering and deeply troubling. We found the founding myth of modern Los Angeles as a sort of nation's capital of single family home sprawl also ultimately led to this sort of cruel paradox, which is the region is the most crowded in the country and has been for quite some time. So how far back into L.A. history did you have to go to understand what was happening with overcrowding or how we got to this moment? Well, really, in a sense, the start of modern L.A., Back in the 1880s, when the rail lines were connected here and a bunch of boosters, whether they were the 
Chamber of Commerce types or the LA Times owners themselves and uh, and others, you ah. know, sold this place in Los Angeles, which was essentially nothing, into this potential paradise. There is probably no single area holding so much of charm and beauty and the good things of life as Southern California. That got away from the idea of what was happening in East Coast and Midwest cities of being, you know, having high density. From the beautifully designed Spanish-type station at Los Angeles, in the heart of the City of the Angels, the thrill of Southern California is in the air. And the sales pitch of L.A. is this bringing the mix of all the things you can get in the cities. Fine buildings, huge stores, busy citizens. Your playhouses and your well-integrated economy and all those sorts of things. A city which has grown faster than any other in America in the past decade and which sees a constant day-to-day influx of people from every part of the world. With the space that you can have in the countryside, that was the deep sell. In the years since the turn of the century, Los Angeles has grown from a sleepy Pueblo to a vast, seething metropolitan city. And that went on for decades and decades and decades and led L.A. to be the place that it is. And what's interesting is when we think of housing in big cities, the stereotype is always a place like New York, you know, tall buildings, public housing, very dense. And yeah, L.A. has that, obviously, and it has had that for a long time. But the defining feature for the city and the county is suburban sprawl, single family housing specifically. Liam, how did that become the priority as the region grew? So that idea was part of this founding myth of Los Angeles. And I think it's important to note that this founding myth of Los Angeles was specifically designated for, you know, white residents to come here from other parts of the country. When you talk about what the world was like for black families who may have been trying to escape Jim Crow laws and Asian families who came here to build railroads and ultimately, you know, Mexican families who came here to build houses and work in slaughterhouses and all the things in the early late 19th, and early 20th century, the response among the power brokers in the city was essentially exclusion. You know, this single family home dream was marketed and sold as something that would be predominantly for white residents to come here. And this idea, Liam, of like, oh, Southern California is wonderful. It's gorgeous. It's a paradise. Historians call that boosterism. And as you mentioned earlier, the Los Angeles Times was notorious for that and a very specific type of boosterism. Right. So that boosterism was extremely prevalent. I mean, it's the idea of, you know, um, you could see from mountain to sea, you have you yourself get a house and an orange tree in your backyard and with a manicured lawn. The weather, of course, being the central sales point, which, you know, frankly, it probably still is today. But like, that's the deal. So we shouldn't underestimate how significant this booster campaign was. I mean, there were newsreels, there were billboards, there were postcards, songs, cartoons, newspaper ads. And really, they just sent this one overriding message to the rest of the country, which was come. You know, there was this ad we found from 1921 in The Times that was titled The Great Southwest. Then I'll just quote a little bit from it. Here where nature, I'm bringing my booster voice. Here where nature has builded her finest playground, man has added the material things that provide the comforts that make life worthwhile. Thousands and thousands have come to enjoy the life in the mountains, near the sea, in the citrus groves, and amid the forever blooming gardens, and yet but a fraction of the resources of this wonderful country have been developed. And so, you know, orange groves, you get your house, you get your backyard, you know, you get all these things, and you can only get them with the best weather in the world in Los Angeles. 
these postcards that we have from that time period too. It's all greetings from California, from the land of heart's desire. It's the same thing talking about the orange growing, the fruit trees, and every postcard, it had a house. So it's just this idea of, yes, come here and, and you will have your own house. But again, as the both of you mentioned, it was come here, basically, if you're white, but Black folks came in, Latinos, everyone, everyone tried to come into LA and, you know, starting in the 20s and 30s. But how did Los Angeles make sure that people of color did not live in these white communities and were not able to get part of that uh, boosterism dream? So there were formal and informal ways of doing this. I mean, some of the formal ways with that, there were these racially restrictive covenants that developers would put into communities that were being built. You know, we found an ad from 1925 in the Times that touted that, quote, the residents of Eagle Rock are all of the white race. There was legalized segregation that ensured that, you know, this sort of city of homes, which is a frequent theme among the boosters and what the LA Times in particular called what Los Angeles would be, would only be for white people. And Brittany, that's when you started seeing the first catastrophic effects of overcrowding. Right, exactly. And we were seeing cases of, you know, house courts, like groupings of small wooden shacks and sheds. It's often filled with four or five people per room. I mean, these were Mexican laborers who were crowding into these conditions. And that's when tuberculosis started to spread. And I think it's important to note, this is 100 years before the pandemic that we're in now. And this problem was arising in overcrowded homes in Mexican neighborhoods and Latino neighborhoods, the same as it is today. And so there was a warning sign for what was going to happen a century later in, in Los Angeles. And not only that, we should emphasize that a lot of our research found that these public health and political leaders knew that overcrowded housing was driving the spread of tuberculosis, which spread through the air just like COVID-19 is. Yet, instead of realizing the housing was the issue and the conditions were the issue and the low pay was the issue for these Mexican laborers, they blamed Mexicans themselves, blamed, blamed race. And that will be a troubling theme that we found throughout the century. Coming up after the break, an exploding population, bulldozed Mexican neighborhoods, and garages become shelters of the last resort. We're back with Liam Dillon and Brittany Mejia, two of my colleagues at the Times. And we're also in the middle of the baseball playoffs. And sadly, the Los Angeles Dodgers are out of them already, which means a lost opportunity for the country to learn about one of the most notorious incidents in L.A. housing history. Liam, what was it? So on the site uh, where Dodger Stadium is today, it was not supposed to be a Dodger Stadium. It was not supposed to be a baseball stadium at all, but rather it was supposed to be one of the largest public housing developments in the country known as Elysian Park Heights. And that was planned to relieve a significant housing shortage that the city had had after World War II. And the issue, though, was that there were many Mexican, predominantly Mexican families who were living in those communities who ultimately were forced out uh, at the end of the day for what ended up being baseball. Little walk up the hill was everything. And we'd just walk there. And uh, the nuns would make sandwiches and things. And it was just a very vibrant uh, center. So I spoke with a woman named Carol Hakis. Uh, she's 79 and grew up in the Palo Verde neighborhood in Chavez Ravine. And she ended up losing her family home to what was thought to be this public housing development that ultimately became the stadium. And 
we had affordable housing and the opportunity to, uh, you know, generational wealth building and have us do better. She remembers in 1951 when uh, city housing officials handed an eviction notice to her aunt for their properties and also remembers when their neighbors got the same knock on the door. A lot of breaking into tears and what are we going to do and where are we going to go and, Uh you know, uh, this is our house, our our land, uh, our tierra, you know. God, I get chills when I think about it. It was a terrible time, you know, like the whole year, two years before. So the failure of the public housing plan in Chavez Ravine was really a turning point in L.A. history. It was supposed to be, you know, this potential change from the city of homes idea that we have been talking about earlier to one that would add density and, and diversity to L.A.'s housing market. But what ended up happening, you know, real estate interests using the paranoia of the Red Scare, communist Red Scare, killed the project. And ultimately, that land went to the Dodgers for their stadium. Now, overcrowding did decrease during this time, post-war time, and that's because there was this gigantic increase in construction sort of writ large, uh, new single-family home developments all over the place. Uh, But it wasn't just about suburbanization, too. I think it's important to know during this period, there are a lot of these and people that are still around. People will see them. These sort of thousands of low-rise, dingbat apartments. You have your housing on top and your parking underneath, and they were springing up in more established neighborhoods in L.A. and offering some more affordable rents. Yeah, that's an iconic architectural style in L.A. still to this day. And the 50s and early 60s, that was also a time where court rulings, they were saying desegregate housing. You can't ban renters on the basis of their skin or their race. But Brittany, I'm sure there was backlash to those integration efforts. Yeah, exactly. Largely white homeowner groups were worried about social unrest that had exploded in the neighborhood of Watts. And that was like 1965. And that also came at a time of a budding environmental movement. And so these groups were all agreeing that new development in recent decades had made the city polluted and overpopulated. And the city began declaring many neighborhoods, especially those on the west side, off limits to more housing. Yeah. So to talk through that point, we spoke with Greg Morrow, who's a professor of real estate at UC Berkeley. And he's written a ton about what became known as L.A.'s slow growth movement. At the end of the day, we put in place a bottom-up process that favored those who owned homes. And they didn't want their neighborhoods to change. And as a result of that, many of the areas of the city became kind of privileged enclaves. The dynamic that that plays out is you end up with areas that are very, very affluent and sort of walled off from the rest of us. And areas that are kind of the Wild West where you have lots of kind of redevelopment and and development happening. So what happened up through the 19, early 1970s is we put in place this condition for overcrowding potentially to explode as it did. First, we disregarded sort of the housing needs of low-income Latino workers and their families. Second, we rejected public housing and public subsidy and low-income housing and density in Los Angeles. And third, we ultimately began, as we've just discussed, sort of turning off the spigot of mass home building, which had been dominant in L.A. for close to 100 years. 
And what ended up happening is that when impoverished newcomers who were buoyed by relaxed immigration laws and LA's sort of endless demand and ongoing demand for cheap labor began arriving from Mexico and Central America in the 1970s, they simply settled where they could. And that was usually in these older neighborhoods near rendering plants, near freeways, near oil derricks and factories, you know, places like Pico Union. And that's when Brittany, especially in the 70s and 80s, with the Central American civil wars and a lot of migration from Mexico, that's when it seems overcrowding was really reaching a tipping point. Right, exactly. I mean, and Liam and I had seen this just going through a lot of our old clips at the time. You know, starting in the 1970s, you have slow growth fervor combined with a diminishing supply of new land to develop, which meant the end of L.A.'s home building booms. And that was happening, as you were saying, all of these immigrants were coming into the region to work. And so they had no choice but to crowd into low-rise slums and hastily converted garages. We read up on investigations we had at the time that there were, 1987, there were like 42,000 garages sheltering approximately 200,000 people in L.A. County alone. One of the most striking cases to us as we were going through the archives was the case of a fire that happened in Westlake. There were 10 people who died. It was a packed apartment building. It was the mid-90s. And just looking at that toll, and there were so many people who died because it was such a crowded building. I think at the time, Cardinal Roger Mahoney eulogized the victims and pled for more humane living situations. And meanwhile, overcrowding in Los Angeles, it starts spreading across Southern California, and it really hit in Orange County, specifically the city of Santana. And that's where one family decided to fight back. More after the break. Brittany, you went to Santana to interview the Briseño family. Where were they living back in the 1980s? Okay, so... So the Briseño family lived in Santa Ana. Bueno, yo llegué aquí en 1971. Todo ese tiempo tengo aquí. That was Beatriz Briseño, the wife of Ascensión Briseño. Yo solo Pero yo casi no me comunicaba mucho con él en eso, él era el que a veces llegaba y me platicaba. Yo le decía que no me gustaba que anduviera en todo eso. Y sobre todo allí que tenía problemas y había tanto que vendía droga y como dicen ustedes, me daba miedo que... They shared a cramped one-bedroom apartment. Three children slept on bunk beds. ¿En el apartamento? Sí, del apartamento. Pues estaba pobre. <laughs> había mucha cucaracha. <laughs> and Ascensión Briseño and his wife, Beatrice, were sleeping on the living room sofa. Este, había mucha cucaracha, teníamos ratones. Recuerda que... They were sharing 395 square feet with cockroaches and rats. So this big fight actually kicked off there because they were living in this unit. It was on Mini Street. They were trying to get repairs. A bunch of the tenants were getting repairs for the units. And they were told that they would be evicted for having too many people living there. Que querían que se quitaran y que viviera nada más como la familia, ¿no? Los hijos, o sea, como nosotros, que yo, yo, él y los tres. Así querían que nomás la familia. Si tenían cinco o seis como mi hermana, pues estaba bien. Pero ya tener otros allí, como, como mi hermana los tenía como, que ella les hacía lonche, le pagaban también algo a ella por, 
porque los tenía viviendo ahí con ellos. It's, I was gonna say it's so amazing because you would think often I feel like when people immigrate, you know, it's kind of like the keep your head down mentality. No, my dad. <laughs> yeah, I get tell. Pero era bien político chonito, verdad? So city council members also thought that there were too many people living in the apartments and others across Santa Ana. They passed rules that would have allowed no more than four people in apartments like Vicenio's, which would have meant that the family would have faced eviction and so would thousands of others. And why did the leaders say that there couldn't be more than four people per apartment? I think the big argument at the time, and Liam and I both saw this play out, not just in Santa Ana, but in other cities as well. The argument was, oh, this is, we're doing this, it's for safety reasons. But really what you we were seeing, especially during council meetings, was protesters who were against the proposals were getting shouted down with chance of go back to Mexico. Yeah. And so for a lot of people, it was really playing out as a race thing and not really something done to help. So Asensión actually wasn't just the type to give up the fight. He saw this as an attempt to force Latinos out of Santa Ana, so he sued. Here's the son of Beatriz and Asensión Briseño. His name is Gerardo. Santana was becoming more and more Latino, and yet the leadership was predominantly more middle class, more affluent, and in many cases more white. And they didn't quite understand why these apartments were overcrowded or felt the need to criticize or comment because... I think I think their experience was so different than than uh, than ours. Who were more more humble, more poor. I guess what I was trying to say is, if he ever shared anything about the cases, like your mom said, he didn't really talk about it. Um, no, he did talk about it, but not always with us. He talked about it with other people. With us, he was a great man and everything, but he kind of was more reserved. Once he was with his friends or with people that were involved, he was more vocal. What ended up happening? So they actually were able to save enough money to buy their own two-bedroom home in Santa Ana, which is actually where we went to meet them and interview them. But sadly, Asuncion died of COVID in December 2020. So the lawsuit by the Briseños against Santana was successful, but it sadly didn't stop other cities in SoCal from trying to force those occupancy limits as a way to deal with overcrowding. As you said, Gustavo, these issues were spreading out from the city to places like Santana and and also Bell Gardens, you know, areas that had seen significant changes from all white or mostly white populations to predominantly Latino and immigrant populations during this time. In Bell Gardens, for instance, in the early 90s, the all-white city council proposed to demolish broad swaths of the city's apartment-heavy housing stock and replace them with single-family homes and open space. And this is a time when Bell Gardens is one of the poorest and most overcrowded places in the entire country. And what happened was that Latino residents in the city revolted, denouncing the plan as Mexican removal. And while we spent this episode talking a lot about past cases from the 50s, uh, 80s, and even earlier, the reality is that the housing crisis continues in Southern California. Is there any hope for people living in this situation today? So in some ways, you could argue that things are even worse now than they were in the past. The statistics indicate that overcrowding peaked in L.A. in 2000 when the overcrowding rate here was about four times the national rate. Right now, our overcrowding rate in L.A. is 11 percent, which is about three times the national average. But what's different about today is that overcrowding seems sort of endemic. You have generations of families who are 
packed into overcrowded housing and have no way of escape when in earlier decades, recent immigrants in some cases were able to you know, afford to buy their homes and escape those situations. One way this is particularly striking to us was through the story of another family we spoke to. Um, Ruby Gordillo, her husband and three children, had found themselves living in a 350-square-foot apartment in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles, living shoulder to shoulder. Ruby felt her kids were not getting an adequate education, felt the neighborhood was dangerous, talked about vermin and bugs, all these sorts of things happening in part because the places that the family had to do homework was always conflicting with places where someone would need to eat dinner or to sleep. And Ruby described her situation as feeling pretty hopeless. Her her husband makes little as a cashier, and she couldn't understand or figure out a way to get out of this overcrowded living situation. So what she did a few years ago, she joined a group that advocates for low-income tenants. And then right around the time the COVID-19 pandemic started hitting L.A. in spring 2020, she took an extraordinary step. She joined about a dozen other families that decided to seize or take over homes that are, were owned by the state in L.A.'s El Sereno neighborhood. Those homes had been left abandoned for an aborted freeway project, and Ruby decided this is what she needed to do to get out of her overcrowded living situation. Knowing this problem is as bad as it's ever been and spreading across Southern California, Brittany, what are current L.A. leaders saying about overcrowding? Yeah, so we connected with L.A. County Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer, specifically because we were looking at that COVID impact, especially in overcrowded housing. And she acknowledged to us that this is a longstanding issue that's impacted families long before the pandemic. And she also noted that overcrowded housing often goes hand in hand with lower quality housing. I think some of what she was telling us was that there need to be solutions to improve access to safe and affordable housing for everyone. And I think another point she had made was that we need to ensure elected officials are actually using tax dollars to make difficult decisions that benefit those who are most marginalized. And both of you ended up talking to L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti. What was his response to the questions that the two of you had about overcrowding? So, you know, he noted the fact that this is a problem that started many, many, many years ago, and the efforts to dig out of it are really, really hard, given, you know, decades of underbuilding, decades of the city not supporting low-income housing and denser housing in particular. And while he argues that his administration has made strides in all sorts of housing development, it's just simply not caught up with the demand and not really allowed the city to ameliorate some of these challenges. I feel like he did acknowledge and he was running us through some of the efforts he's made to address overcrowded housing. I think one of the big points that really struck me was asking about the use of overcrowding as a solution or stopgap to prevent people from falling into homelessness. And he made the point where he's, that's, it's not a solution. That's, it's not a solution. I guess that's a solution to people not being in cars and on the streets, but it's not a solution. The only solution is to actually build our way out of this. I mean, it's interesting. Our housing crisis needs much more than addressing overcrowding. So you have to do many different things. But overcrowding is addressed, 90% of it, by building our way out of this, period. It's a mathematical question. It's a mathematical equation, and it has a mathematical answer. Finally, Liam and Brittany, this story is also personal to the two of you because the both of you are in Los Angeles County. You are, you do live in these neighborhoods. You're going around, and you have friends who live in this. So 
What's going to stick with you from doing all of this? I think for me, certainly these stories of individual folks who are dealing with these situations right now and the difficult both to their mental health and potential physical health is overriding. But I think from a historical perspective, this sort of thread that ties together over a century of L.A. history where it's clear. I mean, the region has relied on poor Latino immigrant labor to power its economy, but has never really provided sufficient wages or housing for those immigrants to live here. And that's the reason we found why overcrowding emerged and it persists to this day. And when leaders were confronted with this time and again, with the conflict between the suburban lifestyle they were promoting and sold worldwide with the reality of crowding on the ground, the response largely has been to blame Latino immigrants for their lot. And the sort of tragic result of this is fueled this horrific mass death that we've faced in, in L.A. over the past three years. Yeah, I feel like that the point or what's really going to stick with me out of this is doing this deep dive into history and seeing history basically repeating itself again. I think that's probably the most devastating thing and the heartbreaking thing. I think to spend time with these families and see the conditions that they're living in and knowing that's been th those conditions for decades, for a century. I think that is really what's going to stick with me. Brittany Mejia, Liam Dillon, thank you so much for this conversation and for your work. Thank you. Thank you. Liam and Brittany's package also features photos by Gary Coronado that take you inside the overcrowding crisis in L.A. And they also did features on Gabriel Lamar LeMay and Sundaya Kambampati. Read it all at latimes.com. That's it for this episode of The Times, essential news from the LA Times. David Toledo and Denise Guerra were the jefes on this episode and Mark Nieto mixed and mastered. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, David Toledo, and Ashley Brown. Our editorial assistant is Madeline Amato. Our engineers are Mario Diaz, Mark Nieto, and Mike Heffel. Our editor is Kinsey Morgan. Our executive producers are Hasmina Aguilera, Shani Hilton, and Hibble Urbani. And our theme music is by Andrew Eaton. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back Friday with all the news in this month. Gracias.